0: All right, it's fantastic to see all of you tonight. And, uh, it's great to get to do this again. Uh, this is, it's a lot of fun. This is also a great learning experience for me because this is not my natural habitat. I'm used to being able to ramble on at length for like an hour, hour and a half with students. But here with this timeline, I, I have to stick to my notes. And originally I was told back in the day that uh, I had a 30-minute hard cutoff. And I was like, okay, is that, is that actually 30 minutes? I asked Jeremy. And he told me uh, I could have a soft 32 minutes, and if I made it to 33, I was getting tackled, and and that just makes it all the more exciting because I never know—is this the day I go for 33 and get tackled? I'm ready. <laughs> so, and, and and part of the difficulty, I think. Life yeah, and part of the difficulty, I think, is also a lot of times in some of the some of the topics that I it, that I take on here, especially trying to discuss. History like I am because what you're supposed to do in this presentation is take a complex topic and describe it in a manner that's easy to understand and I'm taking a simplistic narrative and trying to explain how it's actually more complex. So and now that I'm yeah 31 minutes from getting tackled, let's talk about the Vietnam War so why why pick on the Vietnam War? Well the Cold War defined most of the post- 1945 world and this conflict was portrayed as part of a battle over ideological differences between the democratic west and soviet style communism with the vietnam war representing this conflict in microcosm according to this narrative we went to war in vietnam because freedom everywhere was threatened by the communist takeover in southeast asia or in the words of president truman we had to go to war in vietnam not just because losing it to communism would be, quote, a blow to our military security and our economic life, it would be a terrible defeat for the ideals of freedom, with grave spiritual consequences for men everywhere who share our faith in freedom, unquote. Now, it's it's widely known that the U.S. took the conflict over from the French in 1954, when, after their defeat at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, the French withdrew their military and left Vietnam as a protector of the United States. But What is perhaps not as well known is that the United States did not just inherit the war in Vietnam from the French in 1954, but rather the United States was responsible for the French presence in Vietnam 10 years earlier, all the way back in 1945, and that the U.S. then provided the necessary military and financial support to keep the French in Vietnam all the way through to their slow defeat and withdrawal. Furthermore, the United States did not support the French in 1945 in order to stop communism, but in order to help prop up the tottering French Empire, because the French were deemed a necessary partner in the coalition to prevent Soviet expansion in Europe. And fears of Vietnamese communism would come several years later. But in 1945, Vietnamese independence was just a pawn the US was willing to sacrifice on the greater geopolitical chessboard. And so tonight, I would like to provide an overview of these events that led to the US enabling and supporting French imperialism in Indochina, and hopefully then provide a context for the later US war there. So to back it up a bit, Vietnam first caught France's eye in the mid 19th century, wedged between the British controlled markets to the north and the south, Vietnam was strategically and financially valuable. The first French troops landed in Vietnam in 1858, and after fierce resistance, the French finally managed to achieve military control over the region in 1897, nearly 50 years after the initial invasion. It Took them 50 years to conquer Vietnam. The French colonial administration then, in a revolutionary act, took direct control over and began restructuring all aspects of the Vietnamese economy and society in order to make it financially independent from the mother country, while reaping its rich resources, leaving its inhabitants destitute. Historian Barbara Tuchman remarked that French rule in Indochina at this time has been seen as the most exploitative European colonization in Asia. Much of the history of the colony can be summed up as brutal French pacification, followed by unsuccessful Vietnamese revolts, followed by brutal pacification. However, the Vietnamese response to French rule was quite complex, interestingly enough. Some of the Vietnamese favored collaboration and grew wealthy off the empire, adopting French culture as their own. And even Vietnamese nationalists who despised this native bourgeoisie did not reject the French entirely and denounced French imperialism with the logic and rhetoric of the French intelligentsia them quoting Rousseau, Voltaire, and Victor Hugo in Vietnamese political tracts. But French imperial status, and indeed the status quo of all empires everywhere, came under attack with the sudden outbreak and resulting ravages of World War I. And the United States was brought into the war to provide France and Britain with military assistance. But President Woodrow Wilson had a far grander aim than just helping to prop up the European Ancien Regime. Wilson announced that if the U.S. was going to participate, then the war would be fought to make the world safe for democracy. I quote, national aspirations must be respected. Excuse me. Peoples may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent, unquote. Colonized nationalists everywhere heard Wilson's words with hope and excitement, and rushed to the Paris Peace Conference in order to help participate in redrawing the global map. And among those petitioners at Paris was a young Vietnamese man who went by the name Nguyen Ai Quoc, but who would be forever remembered as Ho Chi Minh. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ho oh, was a fascinating character. He was well educated. And he'd fled Indochina after supporting a peasant tax revolt. And he then spent the next 30 years traveling the world, working numerous jobs, including as a pastry chef under a famous French chef at the Carlton Hotel in London. And he spoke nearly fluent English, French, Russian, and Chinese. So Ho and his colleagues they arrived at the peace conference, but not with the goal to dismantle the French Empire, but to hold France to her Republican values. Hundreds of thousands of colonial inhabitants had fought bravely in the trenches of Europe, with nearly 200,000 dying in the name of France. And their hope at the conference here was that France would reward them for their sacrifice with reformist policies, granting them greater autonomy within the empire. Ho said, quote, I am eager to learn and hope to serve France among my compatriots, unquote. In various assemblies, the Vietnamese quoted Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and the right to self-determination. But despite the Allies' noble rhetoric, uh, their governments were more interested in applying decolonization to Germany. And Ho quickly began to realize that Wilson's message was never going to be applied universally. And in response, Ho began to make common cause with more radical nationalists in Paris. Ho's eloquence then caught the attention of the French Socialist Party, who invited him to join. The French Socialists listened sympathetically to his speeches for liberty in Vietnam, but ultimately, they were more interested in the political struggles within France and not in the far-flung reaches of the empire. Unable to convince them to turn words into action, Ho left and turned to the only other political group, passionately preaching a universalizing, anti-colonial message, the Soviet revolutionaries. Oh, then traveled to Moscow, but yet again he was disappointed. The Soviets were barely holding on in Russia, and at the moment they were focusing westwards towards Europe, not towards Southeast Asia. Ho later remarked that he had been a voice crying in the wilderness. Despite this, he continued to work with the Soviets, creating the Indochinese Communist Party, tasked with driving the French from Indochina. But the ICP had very little chance of ousting the French. And as it happened before, the French again crushed the nationalist uprisings. But then, in 1939, France became once more at war with Germany, and this time, they lost the Battle of France. After just six weeks of fighting, France was forced to sue for peace. The temporary armistice they signed with Germany was extremely harsh and also, interestingly enough, lenient, allowing the French government while only nominal sovereignty over the occupied northern half of France, while at the same time allowing them independence in the south and permitting them to retain their navy and colonial possessions, including French Indochina. However, the war left France severely weakened and the British attack on the French fleet at Meir's al-Kabir severed France from her overseas colonies. Meanwhile, in Asia, Japan was four years into a brutal war with China. In order to isolate the Chinese, Japan demanded that the French cut off all military supplies heading north from French Indochina into China. Faced with a potential Japanese invasion if they refused, the French complied. Since the French government had declared itself neutral following the 1940 armistice with Germany, Japan refrained from open hostility. And with the forced consent of the French, they contented themselves with merely using Indochina as a base of operation from which to launch their invasion of the dusty Dutch East Indies. For the next several years, relations were tense between them, but the French managed to maintain a very real control over Indochina, and they demonstrated this by yet again brutally suppressing another Vietnamese uprising. Ho Chi Minh returned to Vietnam and immediately set out to rebrand Vietnamese revolution away from its communist roots. According to historian Huynh Kim Khain, Ho quote, called for a national liberation revolution and temporary postponement of the class struggle. Unquote. Ho declared in a public letter, quote, National salvation is the common cause of the whole of our people. Unquote. And so the Viet Minh was formed to provide a united national front against the Japanese and French, as well as a base for future Allied forces. The uneasy Japanese and French troops continued in Vietnam for the next four years until as American troops began to invade the Japanese home islands and appeared ready to invade French Indochina, the Japanese government decided that it couldn't trust French troops to resist the US. So in March of 1945, six months before the end of the war, the Japanese military seized control of Indochina, imprisoned the French colonial government and formed their own puppet state but Japanese rule over Vietnam was short-lived. In that August, with the French government gone and the remaining Japanese forces in negotiations with the allies, the Viet Minh in turn seized control from the Japanese. On September 2nd, 1945, Viet Minh forces marched into Hanoi and declared the formation of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. In front of a crowd of 500,000 Vietnamese chanting, independence, Ho Chi Minh announced, quote, all men are created equal. The creator has given us inalienable rights, the right to life, the right to be free, and the right to achieve happiness. These immortal words are taken from the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America in 1776, He concluded his speech with, quote, the whole Vietnamese people animated by a common purpose, are determined to fight to the bitter end against any attempt by the French colonists to reconquer their country. We are convinced that the allied nations, which at Tehran and San Francisco have acknowledged the principles of self-determination and equality of nations, will not refuse to acknowledge the independence of Vietnam. A people who have courageously opposed French domination For more than 80 years, a people who have fought side by side with the allies against the fascists during these last years, such a people must be free and independent, unquote. And Ho was right to think that he could find support from America. President Roosevelt, unlike Woodrow Wilson, genuinely seemed committed to ending European imperialism. According to his son, FDR invited to him at the Casablanca conference, quote, Don't think for a moment, Elliot, that Americans would be dying in the Pacific tonight if it hadn't been for the short-sighted greed of the French and the British and the Dutch, unquote. Roosevelt firmly believed that the competition between the colonial empires of Europe was responsible for both World War I and World War II. Uh, And until they were dismantled, they would threaten all future attempts at peace. In another report, FDR said, quote, I can't believe that we could fight a war against fascist slavery, and at the same time, not work to free people all over the world from a backward colonial policy, unquote. The British, meanwhile, already concerned by Roosevelt's private announcements, became further alarmed when FDR in the Atlantic Charter, a clause, uh, when FDR included in the Atlantic Charter, a clause respecting, quote, the right of all peoples to choose the form of government under which they will live, unquote. And in particular, FDR was gunning for the French empire in Indochina. Roosevelt loathed de Gaulle in particular and greatly distrusted the French in general, and he specifically denounced their administration of Indochina as a, quote, example of colonial mismanagement, unquote. Churchill at one point complained that Roosevelt, quote, has been more outspoken to me on that subject than any other colonial matter, and I imagine that it is one of his principal war aims to liberate Indochina from France, unquote. But even Roosevelt, for all his emphasis on Vietnamese independence, still didn't shrug off the notion that self governance first required a Western helping hand. And Roosevelt suggested that Vietnam should go through a period of international trusteeship, quote, for 25 years or so, until we put them on their feet, just like the Philippines, unquote. But even a trusteeship troubled his European allies. And the British worried that this policy would jeopardize their own colonial claims, and the French worried what this would mean for their holdings, not only in the Far East, but also in Africa. But meanwhile, the international political scene was changing. As victory began to look certain, Roosevelt had to determine not just how to destroy Germany and Japan, but how to build a lasting peace. Now he had envisioned the world, the New World Order being run by the four policemen, the United States, United Kingdom, Soviet Union, and the Chinese. But this alliance was beginning to look unrealistic as China collapsed into civil war and the Soviet Union began to take its own path. And then in April of 1945, four months before the Japanese surrender and five months before the crowd of Vietnamese gathered in Baden Square to hear Ho Chi Minh declare independence, Roosevelt died of a cerebral hemorrhage. His successor harry truman was almost entirely occupied with building an anti-soviet coalition across europe and france now played a key role in that coalition throughout the war the french provisional government had made it clear that they believed that retaining france's colonies was imperative to restoring france to a rightful seat at the allied table a place they'd been denied during the war president of the assembly committee on overseas france declared quote, france must make a choice to remain a second rank nation, or instead, thanks to the contribution of her overseas territories, to become once again a great power. Unquote. But in order to do this, France would need the support of the United States. And as one French official remarked to his colleague, quote, nothing will or can be done in Indochina without their agreement, at least tacit. Unquote. And now that Roosevelt was dead, de Gaulle eagerly used the shifting balance of power in Europe to hold Vietnam hostage. He threatened that France could not maintain national prestige without its colonial possessions, and a decline in patriotism would almost inevitably lead to civil unrest and a communist takeover in France. De Gaulle told the U.S. ambassador in Paris, quote, if the public here comes to realize that you are against us in Indochina, there will be terrific disappointment, and nobody knows to what that will lead. We do not want to become communist. We do not want to fall into the Russian orbit, but I hope you do not push us into it," unquote. Members of the US government were outraged at the extortion, but it was a powerful threat. In addition to the French threats of going communist, there was obviously the, the obvious sticky point that Ho Chi Minh was himself an avowed Marxist. Um, but interestingly enough, this didn't factor so much into US policy in 1945 as you might think. In 1945, the Soviets were unable to provide support to fellow communists in far-flung reaches of the world, and courting America was Ho's best bet for independence, and he played it to the max. Rather than coming across as ideologically intractable, Ho was extremely pragmatic and was more than willing to tether himself to a capitalist country if that meant independence, which was his chief and primary goal. At the end of World War II, he worked very closely with members of the United States Office of Strategic Services that had been sent into Vietnam, and they wrote glowingly of Ho's willingness to assist them. Ho remarked to an OSS operative, quote, your statesmen make eloquent speeches about self-determination. We are self-determined. Why not help us? Am I any different from your George Washington? Unquote. One message sent out by an OSS operative wrote, quote, forget the communist bogey. Viet Minh League is not communist. stands for freedom and reforms against French harshness, unquote. And regardless of whether or not this was a truly accurate assessment, it still reveals that as far as American intelligence was concerned, um, the message was clear. Ho Chi Minh was eager to work as an ally with the United States. And Americans in the region observed that the Vietnamese widely revered the United States as a near-mythical beacon of liberty and assumed that the US would support Vietnamese independence. US Asian specialists in the Office of Far Eastern Affairs as well as the Southwest Pacific Affairs Division continued to push for FDR's decolonization program in Vietnam, but elsewhere in Washington, the Truman administration was cozying up to France and Britain and now openly supporting imperialism. The US Secretary of State informed the French foreign minister that, quote, the record is entirely innocent of any official statement of the US government questioning, even by implication, French sovereignty over Indochina. Unquote. No one spoke out when de Gaulle announced at a press conference quote, The position of France in Indochina is very simple. France means to recover its sovereignty over Indochina. Unquote. And when de Gaulle mentioned privately to Truman that he would be willing to discuss future independence for French colonies, Truman replied that he was not opposed to the French returning to Indochina. Later that same month, OSS officials in Vietnam sent a message to Truman from Ho Chi Minh requesting that the Viet Minh be involved in discussions regarding Vietnam's future. Truman sent no reply. As the Allies carved up East Asia into zones of control, the US granted Britain oversight in the southern half of Vietnam and China in the north de Gaulle leaped at the opportunity and began working with British officials for French troops to accompany them. In September, British troops began to arrive in Vietnam to accept the surrender of the remaining Japanese forces in the area, as well as to pave the way for the French, but they came with a heavy hand against the local Vietnamese. Sporadic fighting broke out, with Vietnamese nationalists as the British declared martial law, banned public meetings and demonstrations, imposed curfews, and shut down the Vietnamese press. The following month, the French began landing troops into Vietnam and immediately found themselves embroiled in gun battles with Vietnamese nationalists. Outnumbered, the French pressed the Japanese soldiers into service and managed to hold their position. And in late October, the tables turned when the French began to land large numbers of troops, many of them aboard American ships, wearing American uniforms and carrying American equipment. In addition, the French had acquired American transport planes, landing craft, and U.S. lend-lease money left over from World War II. Ho still wrote to the U.S. Secretary of State as well as President Truman, urging them, quote, what we ask has been graciously granted to the Philippines. Like the Philippines, our goal is full independence and full cooperation with the United States, and we will do our best to make this independence and cooperation profitable to the whole world, unquote. And in both cases, Ho again received no reply. As French forces began to make inroads north, Ho pushed for a negotiated settlement. And by March of 1946, he managed to achieve a ceasefire with the French. He then traveled to Paris to discuss a compromise to Vietnamese independence. But French officials were intransigent, while French military commanders back in Indochina, acting on their own initiative, attempted to sabotage the peace talks at every turn by doing anything within their power to provoke the Viet Minh. Again, Ho reached out to the American government, telling a journalist, quote, Your country can play a vital role for peace in Southeast Asia. The memory of Roosevelt is still strong. You never had an empire, never exploited the Asian peoples. The example you set in the Philippines was an inspiration to all of us. Your ties with France are strong and durable and you have a great influence in this country. I urge you to report to your people the need there is to swing the balance towards peace and independence before it is too late for all of us. Do not be blinded by this issue of communism. Independence is the motivating force, not communism. On the issue of independence and the unity of North and South, we are all in agreement, communists, Catholics, Republicans, peasants, workers, unquote. And when peace talks broke down, Ho even attempted to acquire US mediation by offering Kamzine Bay as a US Naval base. But if the French would not budge, neither would Truman. And then by 1947, the French were once again attempting to exterminate the Viet Minh Gradually, the French pushed the Viet Minh back from the urban centers of Vietnam and into guerrilla warfare in the northern jungles. But as the intensity of the jungle fighting increased over the next several years, the French position in Vietnam began to look less and less stable. And then in 1949, the Chinese Civil War resulted in the communist takeover. And Civil War in Korea threatened to lead to the same there. Desperate for allies, the French as well as the Viet Minh began to recast the conflict in Vietnam as part of this global war between the West and communism, and it worked. Despite distrusting Ho, China and the Soviet Union agreed to send him money and supplies, while the United States, eager in turn for French support in Korea, began sending over U.S. bomber planes, artillery, napalm, and ammunition to the French in Vietnam. And this was then followed by President Truman approving $100 million being sent to the French which by 1952, turned into 300 million. And two years later, it was nearly $1 billion. Before the French defeat, the United States would end up covering over 75% of the French war effort, a war that the French would eventually lose and which the US would then end up fighting on its own. What was supposed to be a simple French colonial venture in Vietnam had now escalated into a war being waged against global communism costing billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives. The war in Vietnam was now too big to fail and US politicians could not figure out how to pull out without losing face. As the Defense Department later stated in the Pentagon Papers, quote, the US became virtually a prisoner of its own policy, unquote. And that is how the United States become, became committed to fighting a brutal war in Southeast Asia when at its inception, the United States had no interests and no enemies there. And so for a takeaway from all of this, from the story here, I think it, we need to realize that the real and formal reasons being given for fighting are often two very different things. And that we ought to be distrustful of narratives casting conflicts as a clash between civilizations. Politicians are all about trying to establish an ideological cause for the wars they get us into. And often the one that sticks doesn't emerge until after the war has already gotten underway. World War I didn't become a war to make the world safer democracy until it was almost over. The more modern example of they hate us for our freedoms is one of the most banal attempts at trying to provide just such a narrative. We need to be aware that these wars are not inevitable, that they're the product of years of politicians crafting policy based on utilitarian compromises and backdoor political dealings. And that then when our politicians find themselves prisoners of their own policies, that is how the US ends up losing $168 billion and 58,000 dead in Vietnam where both sides were originally friends. I think at the very least that should cause some gut-level skepticism when we're presented with the next war, whether that's with China, Iran, or Russia. Thank you.